This is Money Guide with Mary Stirk from Stirk Financial Services. Now, here's Mary Stirk. Welcome to Money Guide with Mary Stirk, and today we're talking about avoiding portfolio pitfalls. And with me today, I have Kelsey Banky, who's a certified financial planner out of our Kansas City office. Welcome, Kelsey. Good morning, Mary. So we're excited to talk to you about this topic because one of the things that happens is that people kind of pay attention to their investing and then life gets in the way and they stop paying attention to their investing. So do-it-yourselfers fall into this pitfall more often than anybody else does. So we want to just talk a little bit about some different portfolio pitfalls and how to avoid them. So kick us off, Kelsey. What's the first thing that we want to talk about? Pitfall number one, I would say, is ignoring what doesn't fit in the boxes. Right. Now, what kind of boxes might she be talking about? We're talking about style boxes. (laughs) And style boxes basically are what asset classes fit into. So asset classes come in kind of a wide variety of different things. They're first differentiated by size, small, medium, and large. And then they're differentiated by style, which is growth, blend, and value. And for the most part, I would say that most mutual funds or ETFs or stocks fit in one of these particular style boxes. Yeah, there's, you know, a U.S. or domestic um, category of boxes, the same uh, boxes apply to international um, companies as well. But what a lot of people fail to recognize is that even though most of them fit in those boxes, there are things outside of that system that you should be um, considering for your portfolio. Right. And so here's the thing that people miss the most and is the pitfall number one that we're talking about when we say ignoring what doesn't fit in the boxes. People forget to include something called alternatives. So what are alternatives, Kelsey? Alternatives are investments that you use to try to um, invest in things that don't correlate directly with the stock market. So um, typically investing in equities will have a positive correlation with the market, meaning going to move very similarly to the market, maybe just to a lesser degree or a little bit bigger degree. But alternatives are completely outside of that space and the fact that the market movement doesn't necessarily um have any correlation to how these investments will perform. They're invested in a completely different way um, and designed to not correlate directly with the market. Right. So think of it this way. If the market's moving up, we want to be invested in things that have an opportunity to move up, right? (laughs) But if the market's moving down, it'd be nice to be able to be invested in something that still has the opportunity to move up. So correlation means that the market can be moving in one direction, but your investment doesn't necessarily track with the market itself. So for instance, let's just say that um, some alternatives sort of hedge the market. And very generally speaking, let's say that it might make a bet if that the market's going to go up and if it does, you make money. But it can also make a bet that the market might go down. And if it goes down, you make money because they were betting that that's what was going to happen. So loosely speaking, that's how a lot of alternative funds work. But in general, what we would recommend is that around 15% of a portfolio could be properly positioned in a diversified set of alternatives 
to hedge against down markets and to try to reduce some of the volatility that can come from an all-market-driven portfolio. Absolutely, and there's a lot of different things that fall into this category, and you're starting to get into some really complicated concepts. So this is definitely an area where um, do your research, Mm -hmm. and if you don't want to do that research, please work with a professional that is going to do the research there. Okay, portfolio pitfall number two that we want to talk about is not paying attention to the current economic cycle for how you have your bonds positioned. Now, we're kind of in an interesting time right now, and the last two quarters, the Fed has not raised the interest rate. So from that perspective, in our opinion, it's time to start making some shifts in the composition of bond portfolios. And there's some reasons why for it. When you think about bond positioning, when rates are rising, you want to be kind of in things that are shorter term or inflation protected because that's how you can potentially make the most money in the bond world. But when rates are flat, you want to start to move or tilt more towards intermediate term. Now that we've been flat for two quarters in a row, in our opinion, it's probably time to take some action with that. Absolutely. And there's multiple types of bonds to pay attention to. You just want to make sure that your bonds are lining up with what the, the current market cycle is, is, or economic cycle, excuse me, is saying. Um, and so shifting toward things that... Um, you know, don't, you know, away from maybe those inflation protected or floating rate style bonds. Those are bonds that uh, tend to make, uh, have a chance to make better money in rising interest rate environments. Um, there's other bonds that uh, are better positioning for um, flat rate environments and then either even different bonds that are um, better for um, when rates are going down. So lots of talk in the news, lots and lots, and right. lots of talk in the news about <laughs> all the different directions they could go. And really, I think all three options were, were pretty heavily on the table this last vote um, where they could have went up, could have went down, or could have stayed flat. Um, and you were hearing things from lots of different places. So um, bonds are not something you can just put off to the side and forget about. You do need to pay attention to them and be positioning that uh, part of your portfolio correctly. So think about bonds being kind of like on a seesaw. So long-term bonds are going to sit on one side of the seesaw and interest rates are going to sit clear on the other end of the seesaw. So if interest rates go up, then long-term bonds are going to go down in value. So in a rising rate environment, that's not how you want to be positioned. But like Kelsey said, if interest rates start to go down, it means that clear on the other end of your seesaw, those long-term bonds are going to go up in value. So as, as rates are rising, we want to be kind of on the same side of the seesaw as, in, as the interest rates are. And as rates are flat, we want to move more towards the middle. And when rates are going down, we want to be clear on the other side of the seesaw so we can get the up. That's what we mean by a portfolio pitfall of not paying attention to the current economic cycle for where your bonds are positioned. A lot of people don't have any idea that this is how it works. And they don't make any compositional changes in their bond portfolio. They just kind of buy a bond fund or something like that and kind of set it and forget it. But what we're suggesting is that paying attention to where these interest rates are and what's happening to them really is a key to maximizing your bond performance. 
Okay, I would Kelsey. also say, in addition to that, um, is paying attention to this in your 401ks because inside of 401ks, it, it, there's not as many choices usually in, in the bond areas. Mm-hmm. Just from all the, the times I've looked at them, I look at lots a week. <laughs> um, so if your 401k doesn't have access to the right type of bonds, then you might need to be getting access to those bonds and any your investments that are outside your 401k. So looking at more of a global allocation mm-hmm. for your portfolio instead of an account by account allocation, um, which again is complex, but it's not out of the realm of, of possibility for you to do and um, work with somebody who can help you with that if you're unsure of how to accomplish that. Okay. So let's move on to pitfall number three. Kelsey, take us through that one. So pitfall number three um, is, buying and holding without spot checking for peer group performance. So this particular pitfall, um, you know, so many people take on the philosophy of buy and hold and they hold and they hold and they hold and they hold and hold hold for very, very long times. And it's not necessarily that that's not a a correct way to approach investing. However, my argument against that is that, um, holding things that are poor for a very long period of time <laughs> is probably not what you want to be investing in, especially if you have the ability to shift into something that's a, a stronger performer. So what do I mean by that? Um, we think that peer group performance is an, is an important metric to look at when it comes to monitoring mutual funds and ETFs. Um, because when you look at, let's just pick the large cap growth sector, So um, over 2,000 different funds available in that particular sector. And um, in asset allocation, we think that sector is important. There's a certain percentage you should have in that. And if you have 2,000 plus choices, how do you know which ones to go into? Well, peer group performance helps you identify that a little bit, um, a little bit better because they're all kind of using the same bundle of stocks. They're all going to have differences because each fund is unique. However, they're all trying to do the same thing and they're going to be using a lot of the same companies and strategies to accomplish that same thing. But some people are better at managing those than others. So some fund managers are having more success than others. So I would rather invest in ones that are having that better success than the ones who aren't doing that job as well. Um, and But you can look at the peer group performance to better identify that. So So going back um, to what we said in the first thing about style boxes and asset classes, peer group performance really is just saying, what's the universe in this style box, in this asset class, and which ones are above average and which ones aren't? So it's not rocket science, but it does take a significant amount of tracking to make sure that what you're invested in continues to be inside of something that's above average. Now, that happens to be something that we specialize in. We have a very robust research process where we look at every single holding in managed accounts for our clients every single quarter. And what we're screening for is whether or not something is still above average. If it is, why would you make any changes? But if it's not, we have it red flagged. And red flagged for a certain amount of time, we're going to be looking then at whether or not we want to move into something else proactively so that you can continue to stay in something that's trending above average in its peer group. So doing it like that is going to help you avoid this pitfall number three. (music) 
Welcome back to Money Guide with Mary Stirk. And today we're talking about portfolio pitfalls and how to avoid them. So we talked about a few different things so far. And now I want to talk about something that's called the flaw of averages. So the pitfall is don't fall for the flaw of averages. So what does the flaw of averages mean, Kelsey? The flaw of averages is basically the flaw that you're only looking at averages of rates of return to determine, you know, how your your portfolio is doing. Um, and it, there is a lot of flaw in that because, you know, portfolios that are swinging more severely than others can have the same return as ones that are, are having much less um, movement from year to year. So it's, it's difficult to gauge your actual performance by only using the, the average of your return. Um, it's appropriate to bring in some benchmarks and help you identify you know, what those returns actually are, are meaning in the current market cycles. Right. And here's the tricky thing about this is that the sequence that your returns come in, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute, but the sequence that your returns come in drives your overall ending dollar value. And even though you might have averaged the same as somebody else, your ending value from the same starting value can be radically different. And sometimes even a smaller average performance number can net you more money. (laughs) And if you don't believe that, we have something that we can send you to show you that, or you can come to one of our portfolio pitfall seminars that we do Um, to kind of illustrate how this flaw of averages actually can mess up somebody's thinking, especially if it's the sole criteria that you're using for your selection process. But let's go ahead and dive right into then portfolio number, pitfall number five, which is sequence of returns risk. So sequence of returns risk is all about how having a negative sequence at the beginning of the time you're actually going to use money can damage your portfolio to a point you might not be able to recover from. Yes, during 2008, um, a lot of people saw their portfolios fall. That was a pretty big um, issue in the market. And if you were taking money out of your portfolio at that time, that's probably um, the people who would be most familiar with the concept of sequence of returns risk. Yeah, you heard a lot of people back in 2008 who were saying, oh, I have to go back to work now. (laughs) I retired and now I have to go back to work. So if you don't want that to happen to you, you have to protect and insulate your portfolio from having negative returns, at least in the segment of the uh, portfolio where you're going to be drawing money from. It's not so much that the negative return hurts you. It's drawing money out of an account that has had a negative return. It makes you take more shares out and never gives those shares a chance to recover. And that's what creates this unique risk for people. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's important to protect against that. And there's really, really cool ways how to do that. Um, but it's, it's something that people haven't really thought about. So identifying how to position your portfolio to protect against that is something we would love to help you with. Now let's move on into portfolio pitfall number six. This is all about emotional reaction. Emotional reaction has been proven to be one of the biggest disasters in portfolio management. (laughs) When you sell based on fear, when you buy based on excitement, Both of those things can create radical poor performance inside your portfolio. It sure can. (laughs) 
So if you, you know, you see it as markets hit highs, like we've seen this year and we saw last year, as markets hit highs, if your thought is, ooh, I should go put a whole bunch of money in the market because now it's finally recovered, um, I'm going to challenge that idea a little bit. I'm not saying don't invest. It's just, you know, let's, let's have a process behind this to make sure that we are um, making sense of that because, you know, you know, typically it's the buy low, sell high, not buy in at the high. But does that mean <laughs> you should leave your cash on the sidelines? No. It just means you should have a process for how you're going to deploy that in a in a you know, up market. Right. So the basic advice here is that you should have some type of formula connected to both your buy and your sell decisions. Now, the truth of it is that if you are somebody who likes to invest, my hunch is you probably have buy criteria that you figured out for yourself, but I bet you don't have great sell criteria. So if you look at, well, what's it going to take for me to sell this holding? The sell piece of it is where the emotion really hits home the most and can damage portfolios in a big, big way. So when you're um, analyzing things and you're trying to create a formula for yourself, there's really some different types of metrics that are out there. The first type is called fundamental metrics. And those are really all about looking at the financial strength of the company to decide if it's a good buy for you or it's time to sell. And the second type is called technical or strategic analysis, which really is looking at more along the lines of financial trends to indicate or create value for you. So Kelsey, give us a couple of examples of what kind of things might fundamental analysis be looking at. So fundamental analysis, again, that's, you know, the health of the company and we'd be looking at, um, you know, price to earnings ratio, debt to equity ratio, price to book ratio, things of that nature. Um, on the flip side, the technical analysis, again, is looking at financial trends. So we'd be looking at standard deviation or you know, another term for that is measuring volatility, um, moving averages, momentum, RSI, things like that. So a um, couple different things in each category. There's a lot of data out there on stocks that you can look at, um, but combining some fundamental and technical um, data with your evaluation should be part of your process. So here's the thing is that um, strong criteria creates better buy and sell decisions. So we use um, algorithms and we use a formulaic approach to determine whether a stock is a good buy and if it's a sell. When it hits sell criteria, then you want to have some type of process to evaluate, is it an immediate sell or is it just time to put some type of stop loss underneath of it? So for instance, let's say that you've kind of started to hit the edge of your sell criteria, but maybe it's not like cry for help yet. (laughs) It might make sense to put a stop loss in there that says, you know, if it drops more than 10%, I'm going to sell it or 20% or something like that. And then it would automatically sell if it stops. So basically a stop loss is going to stop the amount of loss that you can have on that particular holding. And and if you're going to do that, you might want to look at it periodically to do what's called chase the stop. So meaning if the price of the stock continues to go up, 
and your stop loss just stays where it originally was, you're creating a bigger and bigger gap for potential loss for yourself. So periodically, you want to look at that stock and then move your stop price to keep the percentage of loss to something that is within the bounds that you've set for yourself. So that's how to use more of a formulaic approach or using some algorithms to set for yourself what your buy and sell criteria is to avoid this portfolio pitfall number five. Six. I guess that was number six. (laughs) All right. So one of the things that we're excited about is that we're starting to do some lunch and learn surrounding this topic. And if you want to hear more about these portfolio pitfalls, you're certainly welcome to reach out to our office, um, both in the Dakota Dunes, Sioux City area or in the Kansas City area to um, be invited to our next round of live portfolio pitfall lunch and learn seminars. And we will be looking forward to sharing some of that information with you. So we hope that this information has been very helpful and that you have um, come away with some tips to avoid portfolio pitfalls yourself. And thanks for listening to Money Guide with Mary Stirk. Views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of your audio provider and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities or services mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should only be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Securities and investment advisory services are offered through Woodbury Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. Insurance offered through Sturk Financial Services, which is not affiliated with Woodbury Financial. Sturk Financial Services is located at 350 Oak Tree Lane, Suite 150, Dakota Dunes, South Dakota, 57049, and can be reached at 605-217-3555.